0: Thanks, Eric. Good morning, Journey Church. Good morning. Yeah, it's a brand new day. We all should be rested, getting out of the holiday. Uh, happy New Year's Eve! You know, we were talking uh, earlier. We get together, a few of us, and pray before the service, and uh, it, it kind of dawned on me how how New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, is kind of like the gospel. You know, it's like Jesus. I, I like to say he's willfully forgetful. He doesn't care about our past. And so tomorrow's a new day. And so whether you had blessings in 2023 or it's a rough year, uh, we're going to get a new chance to start over. And so wishing you a happy, happy new year. Uh, I know there's some people in the audience that that look new to me. And so if you don't know me, my name's Tony. I'm the associate minister here. And, uh, you know, New Year's Eve, it's said, it's kind of a joke, is that New Year's Eve and holidays like this are when the youth pastor has to preach. And uh, so I'm kind of wondering, why am I here? Um, Zach's sitting in the front row. He's feeling really good about himself and the pecking order here, apparently. So, um, but seriously, I am always, I always feel privileged to get to share with you, and I I try to take it as seriously as I can. And so uh, we've been teaching in the book of Acts for quite a while, and today we're gonna take a break from the book of Acts. I'm glad I didn't hear any applause Because we got a long way to go in finishing the book of Acts uh, starting uh, next week. And so today is kind of a standalone sermon, which means I get to talk about whatever I want. And my wife's usually pretty nervous on days like this. But uh, seriously, um, I want to share with you something that's been kind of near and dear to my heart. And I want to talk about Israel today. You know, a lot of you know, and I'm sure a lot of you are tired of hearing, that I actually got to travel to the Holy Land back in 2017. And that really had a profound impact on me. A lot of teachable moments, it was really revealing. And so that's why typically, when I get to teach or I get to preach, I, I usually mention something about that trip or something about the country. And the reason that is... Uh, other than the fact that I retained so much about it, when I went there, I saw the Bible come to life. It became three-dimensional for me. It underscored the fact that Israel, the Bible, is not a collection of fables, it's not a collection of myths, it's not a collection of stories, it is a real place where real people encountered God. And so that is why it's so important to me. It brought that into that third dimension, and the Bible came to life for me. You know, I was, um, I'm scheduled to go to Israel in September. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. Uh, but I hope and pray that someday I'm going to be able to go back. I had a couple of you that were interested in going, and you're not even talking about it right now, and I get that. Uh, but I hope and pray that someday we'll get to go back together because it is a life-changing experience. And I believe that Israel is an important place in our world. And so what do we know about the country, about modern-day Israel? It's about the size of the state of New Jersey. If you pull out the West Bank, it is about the size of the state of New Jersey. The population is amazingly roughly about the same as the state of New Jersey. It's about 9.8 million. I think New Jersey is around 9.2 million people. And it won't surprise you to know that about 72% of the population is Jewish. And 21% of the population is Arabic. And about, there's about a half a million people uh, that are of what we would consider minor ethnicities. Um, and that would be Armenians, Assyrians, uh, Samaritans and others. And so if you drive in down the road in Israel, which by the way, the roads are very modern. It doesn't look much different than, than the United States. But when you look at the road signs, you'll see the, the preeminent languages. Uh, it's, it's printed in three languages, the road signs. It's Hebrew and it's, um, Arabic and then English. And so, almost all of the signs are printed in those three languages. But you know, and and Hebrew is the official language of Israel. But there's other uh, languages that are prominent as well: Arabic, Aramaic. I didn't know this, but Russian is very prominent in uh, in Israel. And then Yiddish, and then obviously English. And so, depending on where you are. Uh, Sometimes it's difficult to communicate. If you're in like a tourist area, it's, you're going to hear a lot of English. But like in Galilee, in places that are rural and really aren't, to, aren't you know, ripe with tourism, you're, gonna, you're probably going to have a hard time communicating. A lot of cab drivers don't speak English. And so they know the names of the cities, and that's how you can get around um, in, in Israel. And so the population um, of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the largest city. In Israel, about a million people, and so it is fairly highly densely populated. And the old city of of Jerusalem, the the kind of the city within the city, it's the historic walls, kind of pretty close to the area that Jerusalem would have been in the first century when Jesus was on the earth. Uh, it's been rebuilt, I think, like the third century. The walls are that old, but it, it's in the center, and it is pretty highly densely populated as well. It's only about a square mile, the the old city of Jerusalem. It's divided in four quarters. You have the Christian quarter, which is where we stayed in a third century building, a hotel called the Gloria Hotel. Then there's the Armenian quarter, the Jewish quarter, and then the Muslim quarter. Now, the first three are pretty much bazaars and shops and uh, tourist sites and historic sites. Uh, but the Muslim quarter, actually a lot of Muslims live there. And it's extremely highly densely populated. And so the old city is a very interest, interesting place uh, to be. The second largest city in Israel is Tel Aviv, Yaffa. We hear about that city a lot. It's, it's only about a half a million. It's about half the size of Jerusalem population-wise. But it's by far the most modern city in Jerusalem so it's gonna, it has a very big Western influence. Now, um, about eight years ago, the United States recognized Tel Aviv as the capital of Jerusalem, or of Israel. But the Israelis have always established Jerusalem as their capital. And it wasn't until maybe six, seven years ago that the United States actually followed through in recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and actually moved their embassy there. And so Tel Aviv is close to the largest airport, actually the only international airport in, Jerusalem, or in Israel, and that is Ben-Gurion Airport. And so it's pretty close to Tel Aviv, about 40 minutes from Jerusalem. If you travel to Israel, you are going to enter Israel at Ben-Gurion Airport. It's named after the first prime minister of, <coughs> excuse me, of Israel that served in 1947. So that's just a little bit. I don't know if you can retain all that, but that's a little bit of what we know about Israel. It's about 6,000 miles from here, by the way. Uh, the closest overseas flight that you're going to get is about 11 hours. So, But roughly, leaving from Kentucky, it's going to take you about 16 hours to get there. Their time difference is six hours. And so um, it's a little bit about where it is. It's in the Middle East, right? In the middle of the Middle East. So... I wanna share with you a little bit about what precipitated this idea of sharing with you about Israel. And this happened, of course, we know Israel's been in the news every day. When you get up in the morning, you're hearing about it. But back on October 7th, when Hamas attacked the Israelis, an unprovoked attack of the Israelis, it started a lot of discussions. And I know we were meeting with some ministers here in town and we were kind of debating back and forth a little bit about what happened and about Israel and the Palestinians. And, and one, one of the guys that I know pretty well said something that caught me off guard. And, and it made me wonder if uh, my thinking about Israel was correct. He said this. He said, because of Jesus, Israel doesn't matter anymore. And, and again, that, that kind of set me back on my heels a little bit. And so, you know, I wanted to pray about it. And I wanted to look into that. If I'm wrong about Israel, I didn't want to be teaching something that's inaccurate. And uh, so, so I did. I looked into it. Um, my computer screen froze for a second. But uh, is Israel important to Christianity? Is it important to our faith? Is it relevant to Christianity? And so that kind of occupied a lot of my time thinking about that. And like I said, I I don't want to be wrong. I've always thought that Israel um, was important. And so that's what I kind of want to unpack today. I I want to talk about, is Israel important to the Christian faith? Is is it relevant to our belief system? And so um, I think it is. I think it's important to Christianity. So I I want to look at five reasons why I think that it is. I'll start out by saying this. All of the New Testament that we read about happened in Israel. All of it happened within the the confines, the borders that we know today as Israel. Most of the New Testament, some of the New Testament at least, happened in Israel. Actually, all of what's recorded in the Bible occurred in a space about the size of the state of Texas. And so if you superimpose Israel in the state of Texas, it's a very small area in our world that includes Israel. And so the land of Canaan that we read about in the Old Testament is Israel. And so God's chosen people were the Jewish people, and God's chosen land that we read about in the Bible is Israel, Canaan. So I wanna share these reasons with you. The first couple are more maybe relevant to our culture, our modern day times. But the first reason I think that Israel is important is because Israel is strongest ally in the Middle East. Our strongest ally, militarily, Israel is a strong nation. The IDF for the Israeli Defense Force is, is bar none. It's, it's a very modern and well-equipped and, and fearsome fighting force. They have the Israeli police that are basically the same. If you're there, you're gonna see a lot of the military, and you're gonna see the police. The only difference, really, is the color of their uniforms. The, the military, the IDF, are, are drab, olive-colored uniforms, and the police are gray, but they're equipped exactly the same and trained exactly the same. When you turn 18, as an Israeli, it is mandatory that you serve in the military. You know, I was talking with a relative yesterday who had a friend who had dual citizenship. He was an American citizen, and he was also an Israeli citizen. And when he, he's living in the States, but when he turned 18, he went to Israel to serve and, and do his duty, to serve for two years, mandatory, when he turned 18. And even after you serve your two years, you are in the reserves well up until you're of adult age. And they are very, very well trained. And so militarily, it's good to have that partner in the Middle East. Economically, Israel is an affluent country. You know, their agrarian, their agribusiness is pretty incredible. They actually developed drip irrigation. And so if you're driving to the south in Israel, and you enter into the desert, as you're getting closer to the Negev desert, you're going to drive past lush date palm plantations. Banana plantations. And their production, what they can produce in dry, arid climates, is respectable. It, it's pretty much apparent that, that God blesses that because they produce more date palms, more dates from the date palms than any other country in the Middle East. And technologically, Israel is superior. Their, their technological intelligence is pretty incredible. I don't know if you know this, but these smartphones that you have in your pockets, the Israelis developed smartphone technology. They, if we went to the Israeli museum and there was a, an exhibit, and you could only see it with a microscope, and they had actually printed the entire Bible on this little tiny speck that you can't even see with the naked eye. So their their technology is pretty incredible. And this next thing I'm going to say can't be overstated. Israel is the biggest provider of intelligence that helps us battle the war on terrorism and and Muslim extremism. The Mossad is kind of like the CIA of Israel. They are well-trained and they are incredible and we would be... And we would be in a lot of trouble if we didn't have the intelligence that they provide. And so the Middle East has been a, it's been a place of near constant upheaval and violence. And so it's important to have a strong ally in the Middle East. Second reason, Israel's enemies are always in, have always and are still plotting their destruction. They have been since they became a nation in 1947. They're, they're constantly plotting for their destruction. I've got a map I wanna put up on the screen. Israel, of course, is the orange. You can see the West Bank um, in the cross-hatched area. Gaza, that's where all the trouble is right now. That's where the war is being fought, that little tiny strip on the Mediterranean Sea. You know, here's an interesting thing. 9.8 million people in Israel The population of the Gaza Strip is 2.5 million people. And so a fourth of the people live in that little tiny strip. And the Israelis, I think back in 2006, they they got kind of tired of dealing with the, the, the attacks when Hamas became the ruling party in Gaza and they built a wall around it. And so um, you can see there's this, the countries. One country that's not listed on the map is to the north is, is uh, Lebanon. You have Lebanon, Syria, you have Jordan, you have Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Israel has at one time or another been at war with all of those countries. And so it is surrounded by hostility. I've got another map here to show you. The little blue sliver you see is Israel there. This is the location of all of the terrorist organizations whose charters are the destruction and the genocide of the Jewish people. Israel is surrounded by hostility. Israel has had 18 insurgencies or all out wars since they became a nation in 1947. All but four of those 18 wars, Israel fought alone with no troops on the ground. A lot of those wars, they didn't even have the support of the United States. And there's something that's common about all of those wars, Israel never instigated those wars. They have always been attacked. And back, I, I can't remember what the year was, but the Yom Kippur War that you've probably heard about is when Egypt and, and uh, Syria attacked simultaneously on that religious holiday. And they made some pretty good ground in a couple of days, and it looked like that they might win then the Israelis regrouped and they pushed them back and pushed them back even further and gained more ground. But here's the interesting thing. Israel has always, whenever they get through with these conflicts, they give land back. It's always been their desire to try to keep peace and they give land back. The The temple mount in Jerusalem is actually controlled by the, um, by the Jordanian, by Jordanian Muslims because the Israelis seceded that to them in, in hopes that it would create peace. And the Temple Mount's a pretty holy place for the Jewish people. And so they have always um, given land back even when they've taken it. That's why, and that's why a West Bank exists today. It's because the Israelis have tried to offer that as a peace treaty. And so what we see on the news today, it's pretty amazing. When, when October the 7th happened. For a couple of days, we heard about the atrocities that occurred. And then public sentiment and in the news, it started shifting. And we started seeing more pro-Palestinian um, information. And now, if you, if you really pay attention to the news, it's, it's putting Israel as the aggressor in the struggle in the war. You don't hear about uh, the, the, the atrocities. It's not being reported much anymore. Um, it's pretty amazing to me that now when, when they, if they do talk about the attacks, they say it was an attack on a concert. That was one attack that occurred. They attacked a bunch of youth, teenagers, at a music festival, but they're not even talking about the many kibbutzes and farms and communal farms that they attacked, killing people in their sleep, dismembering children in front of parents before they killed them. We don't hear much about that anymore. What We're hearing what's being reported to us is reporting Israel as the aggressor. It seems like the, the Palestinian struggle is more important. You know, the UN Security Council in 2020 issued 17 resolutions condemning Israel while issuing only six other resolutions worldwide. And there has been no resolution condemning what Hamas did on October the 2nd. I believe that Israel has negotiated in good faith. If you check in your history, Israel has negotiated in good faith with the Palestinians to allow a two-state solution, but it's been rejected over and over and over again because it's hard to negotiate with people who just want you dead, who just want to kill you. It's not like you can meet them halfway. You know, Winston Churchill said this. He said um, that you can't appease a tiger when your head's in its mouth. And I think that's what the Israelis are dealing with today. You know, I listen to Ben Shapiro. Now, you may not like him, but I, I, you know, and there's some things that he's a little edgy, but I don't think there's a better prepared debater in the world. He, he cannot lose a debate, apparently. He is a very intelligent guy. And I saw him in the heat of a debate with, uh, with some Palestinian sympathizers, and he said this, and, I, and it kind of it run true for me. He said, if the Israelis were to lay their weapons down today, it would lead to their all-out destruction. But if the Palestinians would lay their weapon, weapons down today, it would, it would result in a, two, in a second state. They would have their own state. I personally, that's my, this is my opinion, I personally believe that there's a lot of truth to that. And the next thing I'm going to say may be controversial, and I'm going to state it as my opinion. Um, it's probably the most controversial thing I'll say today, but from the beginning of time, Israel has faced opposition. Not just 1947, Israel has faced opposition from the beginning of time. We've seen it in our time. In World War II, we see the Holocaust. It was the most horrific and most successful attempt to wipe out an entire race of people. That was a big one in our time. And you know, back all the way to the beginning of time with Abraham, and when we look back to the time of Moses, when Moses led his people to the promised land, and he was on the east side of the Jordan River, God gave the Israelis, he gave the Jewish people a directive, go and take your promised land. You know, he guaranteed their victory, and he said, make it an all-out defeat. Take out all of the Canaanites. And the Israelis, we know the story. They went into the promised land, and they disobeyed God. They didn't uh, perpetuate an all-out victory. God told them that they needed to be wiped out because he said this. He said that basically you will intermingle with them. You'll start worshiping their idols. And sure enough, that's exactly what the Jewish people did. They started worshiping the Baals, the Asherah Poles, Pan, all of the pagan gods that existed in the land of Canaan. And I think it's because of their disobedience that they've been struggling to this very day. I think that the wars that they're fighting are a continuation of those original conflicts, the very people that God directed them to deal with. There's a third reason Now we're getting into the biblical reasons why I think Israel is important. The third reason is this. God gave the promised land to the Jewish people as their eternal home. Every other nation founded in the history of the world was by the will of man. Israel is the only nation that was formed by an act of God. That is what the Bible tells us. It was the promise to Abraham As an eternal covenant. We see that in the book of Genesis when God said, The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. That's an eternal promise for the Jewish people. And you know, the existence of Israel today is pretty amazing, it's nothing short of miraculous. You saw the maps. This little tiny sliver of a country of 9.8 million people is able to survive amidst all of that hostility with all of those people that want them gone, and they've never been able to succeed in doing that. That should tell us that Israel is important, that they're blessed by God. Now, there's just a few reasons I can offer that we need to stand for Israel, but I think we need to do that more than we ever have. I think we need to pay attention to God's promise. The psalmist instructs us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you, peace be within your walls, and security within your towers. The fourth reason why I think that uh, Israel is important to Christianity is because God has promised to bless those who bless Israel. We find the evidence of that again in the book of Genesis when the Lord said to Abraham, go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house and to the land I show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And get a load of this. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who hold you in contempt. Now, I wanna tell you a story. I thought about showing this video, but I thought it was too graphic, too much. But in the news, um, right after the October 6th attacks, there was a Turkish parliament member who stood up. He was of the opposition party, and he was in opposition to the ruling party of Turkey because they were engaged in trade with Israel. And basically he got up and he condemned their connection and he basically challenged the God of Israel and said that Allah would not stand for what was going on. Man would stand it, but Allah would not let it happen. And he said, thank you comrades. He laid his papers down and he fell over dead. That really happened. If you wanna look up that video, you can. Now, draw your own conclusions. We can call things coincidences but I don't know if I want to be cursing Israel or challenging the God of Israel. The fifth reason why I think that Israel is important, and I think this is the most important reason of all, is that Jesus' second coming will be in Israel. That's where it's going to happen. Scripture tells us to be looking and to be prepared for Jesus' second coming. And the Bible tells us where it's going to happen. Zechariah prophesied that on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem from the east. The Mount of Olives is a place that Jesus in his humanity knew really well, it was across the Kidron Valley. And Jesus, when he was standing in that Garden of Gethsemane, he could look across the the valley and he could see that golden gate I talked about the last time I preached. And you could see through the golden gate into the temple courts and into the Holy of Holies. And that's where Jesus chose to spend a lot of his time when he was in Jerusalem. Jesus found his peace on the Mount of Olives. He had a closeness to the Father on the Mount of Olives. It's the place where he spent his last evening on this earth. It's the place where he taught the last lessons to his disciples. And it's that time that after the, the, after the crucifixion, his resurrection, that he gave his last directives to those that would follow him. It's a place that he ascended into heaven from. And the Bible tells us that that's where he's going to return. You can forget about all the other stuff I've talked about. That alone tells us that Israel is an important place to Christianity. God has never given up on the Jewish people. Isaiah said this, he said, "'On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob "'will no longer depend on the one who struck them, "'but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel.'" The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. And I want to finish by saying this. I'm not trying to sound like an apologist for the modern-day Israelis. You know, it's kind of amazing to me, but statistically, only about 70% of the Israelis, the Jews in Israel, call themselves religious. That means that they don't worship God, that they don't obey their high priest and their rabbis, which they have in Israel. That means 30% of the population considers themselves just ethnic Jews and they don't follow God. And so I'm not trying to sound like an apologist for all of that, but God chose the Israelis. He chose the Jewish people, even though they reject him. We see that in the Bible over and over again. But I'm going to tell you what, I cannot find any biblical evidence that says that Israel isn't important to God. You know, there's some in Israel, and I met quite a few in certain areas that are called Messianic Jews, which means they practice the orthodoxy of Judaism, but they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I think that's evidence of the remnant that the prophets are talking about. God hasn't given up on all of the Jews and I don't think we need to either. You know, there's a theory out there called replacement theory. Randy kind of pointed me towards this and I read a little bit about it. Uh, And basically the theory is is that the Christian church has replaced uh, Judaism. It's replaced the Jewish people. And you know, that's an interesting theory But there is simply nothing in the Bible that tells me that. As a matter of fact, Paul says we are grafted in to God's chosen people. And so I really don't subscribe to this, um, that theory, the replacement theory. I think the Jewish nation hasn't gone away. It's still there and there'll be a remnant. I think we need to minister and I think we need to, to spread the gospel to the Jewish people and pray for that remnant that the prophets talk about. Now, I want to close by shifting gears just a little bit. There's something else that that I saw recently that kind of haunted me a little bit, and it was a podcast. And it was, I think, a Southern Baptist minister, a well-known minister, and there was this new guy to Christianity, and he was interviewing this guy, and he said, what's the problem with the American modern church, as if there's only one? But he said, what's the problem? And this guy in his very Southern Baptist dialect, which I'm not going to try to imitate. Maybe I can anyway because I've got an Eastern Kentucky accent. But but he said, the problem with the church today is a lack of biblical knowledge. Now I want to preface what I'm about to say because I don't want you to hear the wrong thing. Opening the Bible is crucial to our faith. Living in the Bible daily is crucial. Studying the Bible and understanding what Jesus did is critical to our faith. Jesus modeled that. Jesus knew scripture, but here's the thing. Jesus applied it to his life. It wasn't just about knowing. Jesus applied it to his life. And by my own own personal experience, and maybe just at my level of experience, I don't think the problem is that we don't totally articulate the finite truth of the Trinity as if we could ever understand that. I don't think that the problem is that we, we're not adopting, you know, all of the five points of the Calvinist tulip. I don't think the problem with the church is that we haven't decided whether we're all or prelim. I don't think that that's really uh, the problem. I don't think it comes from misinterpreting the many mysteries of the text like we could ever totally understand that. See, I think the problem is, is that we get lost in thinking that salvation is a complex question, that it's a complex equation. It's my personal opinion that we've taken something so simple as the gospel, and we've tried to turn it into this intellectual pursuit. And the simplicity of the gospel is this, that Jesus came to this earth. Emmanuel, we just sang that song the last couple of weeks. God with us. Jesus came to this earth and he lived for about 33 years. And the last three, three and a half years of his life, Jesus collected those that had faith in him and he tried to teach them what it looked like to bear fruit in their lives. And then he willingly laid down his life. He hung on a cross for our, it's his sacrifice. He died a substitutionary death For us, and as if that wasn't enough, three days later, he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit to show us that we don't have to die a permanent death, that we can live a life eternal with him. That's the gospel, and it doesn't get any simpler than that. It's faith in Christ that brings us to the Father. Peter said, we just read about this a couple of weeks ago in the book of Acts, when they said, what do we have to do? Peter said, repent, confess, and be baptized. That's the gospel. It's really that simple. Believing in Christ, repenting, and attempting to turn away from our sin and start our journey that leads closer to Him. That's why we have that mission statement. We want to help you move on a simple journey toward Jesus. And that's where it begins, at the foot of the cross. Maybe that's you today, and you haven't accepted that promise. It's free to all, Jew or Gentile, the Bible says. If that's you today, I would say, don't go into the new year not knowing Christ. How this can work is we're going to be up here. I think Randy's going to be up here with me during this last song. I'm going to pray first. I want to invite you to come up and make that confession. You know, the water's always warm, folks. We have shirts, we have shorts, we have towels. Don't let the day go by without fulfilling that, that wonderful free gift that God offers to us. You know, there's no masters of divinity, there's no college degree that we can earn that's gonna help us get to heaven. There is no good works that we can do that's going to help us earn salvation. It's a free gift offered by Jesus. Pray with me as we prepare for this uh, song of invitation. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you on the cusp of a new year. We're one day closer to your return. Lord, I pray for each and every person here in the audience that they would understand the importance of your land, your people, and more importantly, your promise. God, we love you and we want nothing more than to glorify you and to honor you and to share the good news as you've given us the directive to do. Lord, today we offer all of our songs, all of our praise, and all of our prayers in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.